Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Gordon McGee who is a book blogger and his popular blog Grab This Book has been running now for the past eight years and is a vehicle for his lifelong passion for reading. A graduate of Stirling University, Gordon works as an independent contractor in financial services in between reading books and blogging about them. And on his blog, he's also recently started the Decades Project with the aim of compiling the ultimate library. Each guest is invited to select five books, one book per decade over five consecutive decades. And having been lucky enough to be invited to take part in that, and then having agonised over my choices, I'm delighted the shoes on the other foot and I've been able to put Gordon through the agonies of choosing five books for the Read All About It podcast. Gordon, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I think I said to you at the time when I, when I did the, the decades submission, I mean, I absolutely loved doing it, but it, it was really difficult trying to choose because it is over five consecutive decades. So even if you have one or two, then you're either jumping forward or jumping back. And then some decades, there's a few books and you, how do you choose? And I suppose that's the beauty of, of what that project is. I sort of stumbled on that by accident and it's actually turned out to be a really effective device for getting a very broad range of books. The five decades thing to give it is what leads to the, the, the piece being called Decades. It was really to try and avoid a cluster of, I really like the Harry Potter books, for example. I'll pick all seven and boom, you know, you've got too many. All right, I'll just pick my favourite five then. So I was, was trying to get a broader range of things going into the actual library, this mythical entity that I've created. Now, no books initially, nothing on the shelves. And now I've had 10 guests and we're up to the 50 books on the shelf. So I'm very pleased with that. And it's a very eclectic and diverse range of things from Harry Potter, which has made it in, to all the way back to the 1930s with some of the books that have been selected. And I don't want to spill the beans on everything that's in there, but there's some really big hitting books and some real gems that perhaps people won't know about. And that's the beauty of it. You might find a book you think, that sounds perfect. I've never heard of that, but I really like that. And it's my, as a blogger, you're always hoping to match a person to a book. And that seems to be happening, which is lovely to see. Because I always think as well, you know, that way you're always looking for book recommendations. And I think either when you read or hear somebody talking passionately about a book, that always intrigues me because if it's had such an effect on someone, quite often you're thinking, I want to see whether it has that effect on me and what was it about it that, that attracted them to the book? Well, that's one of the reasons I started doing the blog way back when. And it was that I've read this book and I knew that at the time I read a lot more than my friends and my colleagues and even my family. So I would be frequently asked, what's good? And I'd say, oh, well, what do you like? And that's the kind of the start of the conversation. What do you enjoy? What, what other things have you picked up? What have you read? And you take your lead from that, ideally. So you could then say, well, if you enjoy this author, I think you'd also really enjoy this author that you've maybe never heard of. And they go away and come back a few weeks later and go, you're right, that was great. What else have you got? And it kind of snowballed from there. Obviously, when you're doing a blog, you're pitching it into the ether. So you can't have that initial conversation of what do you like? So you are very much trying to be more general in your summations. And sometimes you do say, if you enjoy a James Patterson thriller, or if you enjoy reading Ian Rankin, this is a book you should be looking at. But I try not to pigeonhole too much because it's a shame to, to tag someone to someone else's work. So I try and let the book stand in their own merits. But bringing those hidden gems, as it were, to the, to the fore is absolutely what I love to do. 
Because book blogging is, it strikes me, such an important part now of the book industry, of book publicity. And very often you'll see authors when they're about to release a book, they'll go on a, a blog tour. So they'll be, you know, they might be doing an interview with you, they might be doing something else with someone else. And I think it's, I think uh, writers and publishers have realised that book bloggers, A, are passionate about books, but also then can reach an audience of readers. And as I say, it seems to be, it's grown over the years as to be an integral part of, of a book launch, I suppose. Oh, very much so. And I, I, I do see it often. I've been, as you said, I've been blogging for eight years. And when I first started, the, the blog tier was something I, I was aware of vaguely, but had no concept of it or what was involved. And obviously, down the years now, I've been involved in many. And they're, they're a joy to do when, when they go well. So a lot of my friends and peers, they, they run blog tours for some of the publishers, which is very gratifying too, because you know that it's coming from a book lover to another book lover and they reach out because they, they know who likes what and they know who reads different types of books. So you get matched with books that you're generally going to quite enjoy. So a blog tour for an author should be a hopefully a very positive thing because you've got a collective of book lovers all reading a book they should be enjoying in terms of what they normally read. And then they go online and say, I love this book and here's why. And it's it's hopefully, I've seen authors describe it as a daily ego boost, which is quite nice as well. But from the publisher's point of view, I believe it puts the book on social media for a, maybe a two-week, a three-week spell, where every day you're seeing a book cover, you're seeing great things said about it, and it's hopefully it's catching the eye going, do you know what, I, I might give that a go, because it does sound good. I mean, have you found, obviously, you you know mentioned the fact you've been doing this over the past eight years, and, and it's obviously something you enjoy, and it's just something you do over and above your other work, but is there ever a pressure on it on you because... It's quite, it can be quite, I suppose, I guess it can be quite demanding as well in terms of, you know, not only having to read the books to review them and, and <laughs> that, that can probably end up taking up a lot of your time. It can, it can actually be overwhelming and you do see this quite a lot. Um, people just want to, myself in particular, people just want to do as much as they can and be as helpful as they can. So they, they say, I can read that, I can, I can do this and I can be available. And all of a sudden they find they've got five books to read in the next two weeks and it's like, oh my word, you know, the, the panic sets in. I mean, I have myself seen myself sitting up at half one in the morning, finishing a book to then write up a review so it's ready for the next day. That's bad time management on my part, and I'm not suggesting everyone's the same, but there are occasions where you, just, you do think you have overcommitted. And with the best will in the world, life gets in the way sometimes, and you're, you're then putting yourself under that pressure. So yeah, I would say most bloggers that I engage with are very responsible and take the, the duty of the blog tour, as it were, very seriously, because there's a lot, a lot of commitment to do to that. And there's an expectation that when you commit to being on a, a publicity tour in, in that form, that you actually honour your side of the deal and you keep that publicity going for the book. So yeah, the, there are times where you, you perhaps overstretch yourself or something happens and for whatever reason, you, you don't have the time to read. And then you, you do feel that pressure. And I mean, bloggers do it for the love of the books. So the, the most often used phrase is blogger guilt, where it's like, oh no, this hasn't happened or this, I'm, I'm not where I need to be or I need to get this read. And yeah, we, we love to do it. And yes, there are pressures that we put on ourselves because ultimately it's our hobby. It's not our jobs. It's just something that we do because we enjoy the books and we want to help the authors, a lot of whom we become, you know, become very friendly with down the years. So you're trying not to let down people that you've always, you know, been supportive of. There's authors who I've reviewed every book they've written in the time I've been blogging because they've, they've started writing. I was on the very first publicity tour they maybe had or I picked up their first book and thought, this is great. And then I, I try and catch their next books to, to keep that going and say, here's an author I've been reading for a few years now. They're great. You should really pick up their books because not everyone makes it into Tesco and Sainsbury's and Morrison's to be on the, the supermarket shelves. So you do need to champion all the books, not just the ones that are prominent. Because the other thing I think is really important is it seems to me that, you know, particularly newspapers always seem to be cutting back in the amount of space that they may, may be allocated to books. 
it's such a subjective thing in terms of what books are featured and, and how they're reviewed. And I think it's become really important that bloggers then give readers just a, a probably a wider scope of books that otherwise might not get any publicity at all. And I think that's such a valuable thing because sometimes you stumble across a book simply because somebody's written a review or they've written an interview with the author. Otherwise, you might never have heard of it. Well, that's it. I mean, the more places you can get a book spoken about, the better, from, especially from the author's point of view. And to get a newspaper review is a big deal. I mean, one of the, the authors I'm, I'm a particularly big fan of this week posted on his, on his Twitter account that I've got a national review. I think he's being reviewed in The Sun. And it's a big deal because you reach a lot of people you wouldn't perhaps normally have heard your name. So, you know, it, it's a, an exciting thing. But as you say, space is at a premium. And you find a lot of papers don't give the space over to books anymore in reviews. And my local paper, for example, they do have a review section, but it's films, it's DVDs, it's perhaps a TV series, but it never seems to be books. And I have contacted them and said, I'll do your reviews. Let me talk about books. Mm, silence. But I do have similarly blogger friends who write for national papers and they have a, uh, they review books for the, the nationals and another one who does for some of the, the glossy magazines. That, that go. So I know there are book reviews out there. It'd just be nice if we could see more coverage for all the ones we want to champion, not just a select few. Because it seems a strange, that seems a strange attitude, because I think if one thing over the past year, people read books and have been reading more books than ever, and people will read about books in newspapers because they're also reading the newspapers. So it seems to me logical that the one place that should have book reviews is a newspaper. Well, you would hope so, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Or whether whoever they've got on staff that does the reviews isn't a reader and just likes to, to watch things instead or listen to things, but... You think if they're crying out to fill space, they'd be quite happy to take on some extra money. And there's, it could just be, ah, right, we don't, we don't want this guy who's this pushy wee guy emailing us <laughs> going, come on, I can help fill your papers for you. This is what you need to be doing. That's a wee bit cheeky on my part. But by the same token, I, I do think there's a market for a well-placed book review. And normally, normal newspapers are grateful for the copy. And I also think if, if you're a journalist and you're working in the newspaper, you should be reading. <laughs> too much, too much going on. Too many demands at <laughs> the time. But yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate of reading over and above everything else. So I would love to see more reviews in more places. But there are places do book reviews and maybe they feel they don't want to compete. But, you know, if your local paper had the, at least a review of the books you could pick up in the supermarket, you're you know, at least touching base with those ones and saying, well, because I've been in my local Tesco here in Lanarkshire and I've stood beside people who are agonising over a book and I kind of just pick one off a shelf and go, that's really good, you know, try that one. I loved it, it was brilliant. And people are grateful for that, just that steer sometimes if they're indecisive. So um, it's nice to do. So if, you're, if the local newspaper aren't going to get you to do book reviews, maybe Tesco can just get you as the kind of <laughs> wander up and down the book aisle saying, buy this one, buy this one. Yeah, step aside Richard and Judy, Gordon's here. This is what we need to do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, in the course of the, the podcast, we'll, we'll no doubt chat more about the, the book blog and book blogging in general and maybe just about how you get into it. But um, if I can take you on a kind of literary journey of your life now and take you all the way back to, to childhood and always ask people, What's your favourite book from childhood? And the, the book that you gave me as the choice is The Mystery of the Stuttering Parrot. And it's one of the Alfred Hitchcock's Three Investigators series by Robert Arthur. Yeah. And as I've alluded to in my blog, and often I, I love a, a series of books. I like a standalone thriller when you kind of wrap it up and finish it and go, well, that was good. I love to get invested in characters. I, I love just getting to know them, getting to come them back for new adventures and new stories. So a large part of my childhood was spent reading Famous Five, Secret Seven, the Alfred Hitchcock series, which I, I loved. And it was an American, so it felt different and exciting. And I inhaled Asterix and Tintin. So there was very much a get these characters and get to know them. 
And part of the reason is I have total goldfish memory and I'm perfectly open about it. And I'm terrible for remembering characters and names of people. So I can finish a book, put it down and go, I can't remember that lead character's name, so, which is not ideal. But I know I enjoyed the story and I know I enjoyed the book, but it's just I have a, a blind spot for names. So to get invested in a series, it gives me a fighting chance to get to know the people, see them develop and see them grow. So I've always read, and I lived alone from Lanarkshire. I, I grew up for a while in the Highlands. We, we moved when I was about 10 years old and we moved into rural Invernessshire, um, just outside of Dingwall, actually, in the 80s. And there wasn't an awful lot to do and you couldn't really get anywhere. And I lived in our local library and I, I read the children's crime section basically for about five or six years. It was my go-to place, my happy place. So in that time, I discovered this series by who I believed to be Alfred Hitchcock, but he just put his name to it. It's a gentleman called Robert Arthur who wrote the majority of the books. And it was a trio of American teenagers who got into a variety of scrapes and adventures and puzzles, and they classed themselves as the three investigators. And The Mystery of a Stuttering Parrot is the second in the series, and I believe there are at least 20 to 30 books, maybe even into the 40 number books. So there's a fair volume of work to get through. But this was the second one. It was one of the first ones I discovered. And it stuck with me and I, I really enjoyed it. And there was a stuttering parrot in it, which came out with the line 222B or not 222B. That is the question. <laughs> and the reason it stuttered was because that 222B was actually part of an address as part of an elaborate treasure hunt. So it was brilliant. It was really well executed. And it just, this is, I love this. So there you go back to the library. Any more of these? Yep, there's half a dozen here, but we can get you any ones you want. So I basically for a, a year ordered in the books they didn't have and read this whole series. I loved them. And I've discovered talking about them through because I'm very active on Twitter talking about the books I've enjoyed and I've discovered that a lot of other people loved them too. <laughs> so it was obviously a big part of a certain generation's childhood that these books were available and people really we got it. And they were fun. They were it was Hitchcock, it was American. The three boys had won a competition, so they had access to a vintage Rolls Royce that could drive them around because obviously they were, they were still kids, so they didn't have transport. So it was quirky and it was fun, but the, the adventures were really good and they were, you know, they were exciting and they felt dangerous and there was guns because it was America, so sometimes the bad guys were armed. And but this this stuttering parrot has always stuck with me, just the joke of the stutter and how it worked into a really clever treasure hunt. So I mean, that's um, genius. I mean, that that is genius. Stuttering parrot. Brilliant. And there were seven parrots in the book and they all had random names. And this one, this one was called Billy Shakespeare. Sherlock Holmes was another character. And I, I remember reading these and I now have two kids of my own. And several years ago, we were down in the south of England. We were in Cornwall or, and we, we'd gone sightseeing and we'd been told of this great wee church that does, there's a, a rectory on the side that did amazing scones. And when you're in Cornwall, you have to go for scones. That's just the rule. So we're like, right, we're doing that. So we, we, we piled into the car, we, we went to this place and the nearby church was open. So we went in and we had a wee look around and my grandfather used to be a, a Church of Scotland minister. So of course I go into the church and I'm looking around and think, this is quite nice. And I was trying to imagine what it must have been like for him because I never got to meet him. But you go into a church and there's a degree of reverence and I think, oh God, my, my grandfather used to, kind of, this would be his place of work as it were. But at the back of the church, they had a little stall of books for sale to raise church funds and the stuttering parrot was on the shelf and it was 20p. And I thought, oh, I'm having that. So I stuck a pound in the pound in the jar and took the book. And just in, over the last two or three months, I've actually read it with my 11-year-old. We've sat together and we've, we've read it at bedtime and we've gone through it. And he's really enjoyed it as well. So much so that I've been now put on eBay trying to find some of the other books in the series. So it's, it's kind of now jumped the next generation. I've read it really recently. It still stands up. A wee bit dated, still a great story. And he was just, because I knew where it was going, I'd finish a chapter go, what do you think's happening? What do you, what do you think? Oh, he own it. And we, so we'd have that wonderful chat of trying to you know i could i could see him trying to puzzle out what was happening next and 
trying to prompt him along with where the clues were going. So yeah, we we had an absolute blast with it. So one of my favourites, and now I've brought it to the next generation. Yeah, because that's, that's quite nice because cause quite often I ask people when they choose a, the, the book in this category whether they go back and revisit it when they're older. And and I suppose it does change because you're an adult when you're reading it. But I mean, it's so it's so nice that your son is obviously engaged in it as well because there would have been a wee bit of you, I suppose, if he just went, nah, that, this isn't for me. <laughs> They'd have been slightly disappointed. So it's, as you say, it's quite nice then that that will then be a, a childhood reading memory that he then takes into adulthood. Well, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but we'll, we'll cross that trauma soon because <laughs> <laughs> I've tried that later. So yeah, it, it was lovely. that, And it's, it's just that precious time. And reading time for me was very important as a child. I, I can always remember my parents reading to me and it gave me a very early love of books, which was never gone away. So I tried with both my kids to make sure that we, we had reading time and they're both very bookish and they both love a good story. And it's just finding the right stories for them sometimes. My eldest, he reads very different things that I would never touch. His interest is peak teal and hail a book. My younger, he's slightly less keen to read, which is why we still read together but he loves a great story. So I love that time with him, just getting the engagement and having that, sharing the good stories. And I, I enjoy the stuff I read. He picks out books and we read them together. And I think, yeah, I enjoyed that too. There's some great stuff out there that came out subsequent to me. I suppose you hit the nail on the head as well. Sometimes it's it's not that people don't like books or aren't readers, they've maybe just not found the right book. Absolutely. I mean, I can't make them like crime stories, although they both do quite, they proclaim to enjoy it. And the eldest one at Bloody Scotland when it ran two years ago. So he was quite enjoying seeing all the authors and hearing all their stories and he's made he's been to a couple of book events with me and he's you know the adoration and meeting some of these giants i mean the last thing before lockdown Peter was went to see ellie griffiths in glasgow and he was hanging on every word and he was delighted to meet her afterwards and it was great to see and ellie was lovely and she you know signed a book for him at the end and he asked a question over and she was acknowledged the question afterwards as well and she answered it really lovely and so you know the book big people are lovely they're, they're just a lot in a nice crowd and it's nice to see them want to be part of that and engage with that. So, yeah, it's, it's good. Those are the moments, I think, that stick with you. I think when you're younger, if, if you have that good experience, then it's just in the back of your mind of associating something positive with writers, but also then maybe just putting a, a face or, or a, making the writer a human rather than just a name on, on the cover. It's actually it's a real person and you can talk to them and meet them. Writers are my rock stars, so even for me, it's, it's interesting meeting all these people. It's like, oh, my word, you wrote a great book. And it, I do get a bit fanboyish. I mean, I've been doing this for a number of years and I've had lovely chats with people both in person and over social media. And I'm still thinking, oh, you know, you wrote that book and I think it's great. And I, I just talk about them, but they're actually doing the doing the heavy lifting. But it is nice to, to be a little part of that in some way, at least. If I can then take you on from your childhood book, and it's kind of the more kind of teenage formative books and the one that you've chosen, it's The Amazing Spider-Man, The Clone Saga. Yeah. Left field. This is my university time because you asked me for formative and university years. I went to uni in 92. So it was in the days before Kindles. It was in the days before digital books. You didn't have a mobile phone with you. So you didn't have a, a library to carry. So when I left the Highlands to come back to Stirling to go to uni, I brought a number of books with me my, my first term. And I think I read them all in the first week. I was doing other fun things as well, but I always make time to read. So I'd gone through all the books I'd brought and I was like, oh, okay, now what? So when I came back in my second term, I decided that rather than lugging loads of books, I was just going to bring one. And I brought the complete works of Sherlock Holmes in a single volume with about a thousand odd pages and tiny letters. That was about the only book I had for quite a long time. But what I really got into at university, and I'm a huge advocate for these, is graphic novels and comic books. I know a lot of people look on them 
with a degree of disdain. Not so much now, because obviously the, the movie franchises have made them a bit more commonplace. But back in the day, they were a bit of a niche thing to be to reading comics. But I love comic books, and I've been reading Spider-Man and whatnot. I mean, I, th- I think even when I was like five years old, six years old, one of the, the publishers did a weekly Spider-Man and the Hulk comic, and I used to love that. It was great. Spider-Man's always been my favourite. So when I went to uni and discovered there was a comic shop in Sterling who would actually keep comics for me and let me come in every week and spend my money, which, you know, come and, come and spend money. Yeah, okay, let's do that. And I started reading comic books. My, my girlfriend, who's now my wife at the time, was like, why are you wasting your money on this? But I had a huge number of comic books. And at the time, Spider-Man was going through this big story they called the Clone Saga. It's a glorious catch-all. So I kind of refer back to this because I, I did want to say how much I enjoy and what an advocate of graphic novels and comic books I am. But this was a, an ongoing story arc which really divided the fans, particularly later when it was all finished. Everyone kind of went, well, that was a total waste of time. But I really loved it because it was new and it was fresh and it was different. And it was every week, because it was happening weekly, every week the story would advance a little bit and then stop on a cliffhanger, advance and stop. And you just wanted more. And that's as a reader, to want more from your books, to, to keep on, be able to keep on reading and have it keep giving was just brilliant. I always describe comic books as like, it's, it's the book that you love that never finishes. Because Spider-Man's been going since the 60s, and now here we are, 2021, and you can still keep reading Spider-Man's adventures. Same with Batman, even older, Superman. So if you're a fan of these of these stories, they just keep giving, and it changes, and it mixes up, and something big and controversial happens, or one of your characters dies, but they come back six months later because they retcon, or it's a big fake, or as a reader and as a lover of the characters, because I go back again to the ongoing series that I love, just to keep giving me more and more of what I enjoy is brilliant. So yeah. So I picked the Spider-Man comics because this is what I basically kept me going through uni. There's these stories that just kept on going and kept on evolving. And I still, I can go back and read them. I mean, I don't have the original comics, sadly. They all went years ago. And uh, I'm gutted that I don't have them anymore. But to have a, a, a library and a, a collection of comics that you could just dip into, dip out of, and the artwork would change, the, the writers would change, the tone of the stories would change. It's just constantly changing and evolving. It's fabulous. It's such good fun. So yeah, when I was going through uni, comics, and particularly Spider-Man, and this idea of the clone saga was that uh, one of the Spider-Man's enemies many years ago had cloned them, and then 15-odd years later they decided, we're going to bring back the clone and cast doubt as to which one's the real Spider-Man, and that happened. And, you know, it was, well, who is the real Spider-Man? Have we been reading about a clone for the last 15 years? Or So it was, it was nicely done. There was a degree of mystery in there as well, which appealed to me. But it was a story that kept going for about three years, so I soaked it up. Do you think, I mean, if you, you kind of alluded to it there, but do you sense a different attitude now towards comic books and graphic novels amongst readers that, as you say before, that maybe people would either be dismissive of them, that actually people are, are looking at them, you know, particularly graphic novels, as a proper genre that they maybe they didn't before? Oh, I, th- I think so. They, they, they were very much a, a niche thing at the time. I and mean, they had this dedicated fan base, mostly in America, admittedly, where the, the comics are all you know, very much more commonplace. But in the UK, there was a, a core of fans who enjoyed it, that's for sure. But it, they were difficult to get. They weren't really stocked in newsagents. You had to find specialist shops, which sounds wrong, but you had to know where to get your merchandise. But over time, it's become much more commonplace much more accepted the films have certainly helped but i think even before that there was a bigger push to to see more graphic novels and classic novels are now getting comic book adaptations so it's not as if it's limited to superheroes it's, it's very much not there's there's a huge number of um, artistic story i mean the, the manga series and, and the japanese literature there's, the japanese are very big on their, their comic stories and manga's a, a big big thing and although i favor the, the superheroes 
I know that Ian Rankin, James Herbert, Val McDermott, I believe they've got graphic novels out there. So it's definitely something that's, that's very accessible. There's just an audience. There's always an audience for a good story, whether it's told in picture form. And as we all know, a picture's worth a thousand words or whether it's just a, a, a pure novel. But, you know, a good story, no matter how it's delivered, is a good story. Because I read, I read my first graphic novel last year, uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Someone had recommended that to me and I thought it was extraordinary. And, and after reading it, I thought that's the sort of book, if you were if you were going to teach, I think particularly young people, about what happened in the Second World War and the Holocaust, you don't think you could do any better than give them mouse. And that's in a format that maybe they were, they'd be more amenable to reading and say, read that because it's extraordinary. I do think that. It's, there's a lot of people who would never read a, a work of historical, not even literature, but just a, a historical text would maybe read a comic book and get a lot more information from it. I know my son's got it through next door. He's, he's doing history and he's, he's in third year of high school at the moment. And I know he's got a copy and he's been flicking through it and, you know, it's, it's great. It's imparting information. I believe in the same vein that they've made the Diary of Anne Frank into a graphic novel as well. And it is just trying to engage people with, with a new format. One of the things you'd mentioned that when you were at university and you were reading the comic books and your girlfriend, who's now your wife, was asking you why you were wasting your money on these things. But I know just even from reading your, your blog, she was quite influential in, in getting you started on the, the Grab This Book blog. She did. She's a very wise person. <laughs> I tend, tend to find life's easier if I listen to her. For a long time, I'd been just recommending books to people at Christmas time and recommending, yeah, I'd go into work and somebody was going on a holiday and I'd give them a list of books to, to try and pick up before they went. And she used to go, you know, you should do a blog, you know, write it down. It's like, oh, no, it's, who's going to want to listen to this? Who's going to want to read my, my thoughts on it? But one night I thought, okay, let's just go for it. So I did. I, I had a wee Google online, find out how to set up a, a web page and set up a Twitter account same day, you know, away you went, you know, scribble out a, a few thoughts in a book I just read. And I, I shudder to think how some of them must read. I don't like to go back that far and, and look at them. I know what the first book I reviewed was, and it was a James Oswald book, which I really enjoyed at the time. I don't think I'd like to read what I said about it now. I was very positive about it, but I think it just would probably read in my own eyes as very awkward and clumsy. But that was, that's what got me started. And then I, I did a couple of opinion pieces where I said, why don't you go back and read Agatha Christie's The Murderer, Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is one of my favourites. And if you've not read it, and I'm not going to spoil it, because the rule in the blog is no spoilers. But if you haven't read it, it's a phenomenal piece of crime writing. It's, it's held up as a classic for a reason. So I suggested, you know, never mind the stuff in the supermarkets, dig out an old Christie and this is a good one to try. And then I also did one about there's an American author called John Sanford who Stephen King says, he's the guy you take on summer holiday with you. This is the, the man you should be reading. And he's written easily 40-odd books. He's got two different series going. There's one with a, a lead character called Lucas Davenport, and another one is a spin-off with one of the characters from the Davenport books called the Virgil Flowers series. And they're brilliant. They're set in Minneapolis, and they're just great stories. And all the Davenport ones are something of prey, or eyes of prey, rules of prey. I've been reading them since the 90s, and they're still going, and they're great. And Nobody here seems to have heard of them. They're really not well known. And it's bizarre because one of the best crime series I think I've been reading for decades now. And yet in the UK, they're really not prevalent on the bookshelves. You'll pick up one or two if you, if you know to look for them. But there's a huge catalogue there. Like, where, are they, where are they not on the shelves? Get them, get them sold. They're brilliant. So yeah, I kind of did a bit. Why is nobody reading these great books? But then after that, it became, well, what else do you talk about? Because there's only so many rants you can have and how many hot topics you want to try and take. So I then settled more into a, a pattern of just reading something and reviewing it and sharing my thoughts. And that gained a bit of traction and slowly the, 
the Twitter numbers started going up and people were visiting the blog and it, it just kind of snowballed and it's been it's been great. It's still going. And I suppose as, as you say, you may you might not want to go back and read those early reviews. But I think anybody who's writing, your style evolves over a period of time. As you say, if you've never done it before, you're kind of just a leap into the dark and then you kind of find your voice and what works for you. And and I suppose your reviews now will be, you know, naturally would be different from what they were eight years ago. Yeah. And blogging is a very personal thing and everyone's got their own style. And I couldn't hope to emulate some, there's some amazing bloggers out there that I, I love to read, but I couldn't do what they do. And some reviews I read, they talk about the feelings of the character and how relationships between different characters. And I'm like, oh, okay, right. I just like the book. I focus more. I do, my reviews are quite formulaic, but I, I find it works for me. If I try to summarize what the key hot topics of the story are so that people understand what they're getting in for, and then I try to summarize what I thought about it. So it's not rocket science. It's literally just a, here's what I've read. Here's the kind of the, the bits you need to be aware of. Maybe some, I think they call them trigger warnings now, if, you know, because I, I read quite a lot of the darker stuff, which sounds sinister, but I don't really do cozy crime. So there's a sliding scale of how gritty or not a book may be. And cozy crime is the kind of the, the Agatha Christie, quite nice, quite cozy, no blood or minimal risk or danger against perhaps someone like an author like Chris Carter, which is very vivid, descriptive, bloody, disturbing, some people would say. So I do try and make my readers aware where the book falls in that scale. And I'll use words like gritty and noir and dark quite often, but that's just why I enjoy reading. It's a bit more intense and it catches my attention more. But that's not to say I don't appreciate the merits of a, a well-told cosy crime book, because again, they're great mystery stories. It's just not what I prefer to read. So it's getting that balance. But I like to try and just make sure that people understand whereabouts it fits in their reading scale. Because I'd hate to recommend a book to someone who would then say, it's full of bad language and violence and it gave me horrible dreams and don't ever do that to me again. Because <laughs> that's not what you do. You don't want to be turning people off books. You want to be getting them to embrace it. Just trying to find the right pitch for your audience and make sure that the right people are going to be picking this up. So that's what I aim for. But I wouldn't like to try and get into an author's head and say, so-and-so rejects this person because this happened to them and I can see the antagonisms. I'm not comfortable enough saying that's what the author wanted to do. It's that old joke of sometimes the red door is just a red door and there's no symbolism in there. So my reviews tend not to be too deep into the thinking behind the characters and what motivates them. It's just, here's a great story, here's what it's about, and here's why I really enjoyed it. And I think you would too if you gave it a chance. So they're not, they're not intense, but they're always, you find the, the positives in a story and you say, here's what's, here's what's good. And I think if you, this will work for you. Yeah, and I'm guessing then the people that come to your blog they'll know that and they'll know, they'll know what to, to expect from you in terms of what you're going to tell them about the book. I'd hope so. I, I tried to go for it's a fair and balanced approach and there's a, a degree of blogger integrity. You don't want to just say, got a free book from the publisher to review it. I must say nice things about it. There's no gain in that for anyone because if you start recommending mints, people are not going to believe you. So you have to kind of make sure you're doing the book justice, doing yourself justice by not trying to oversell something that really there's no merit to but every book has positives there's a lot of work goes into every book to get it into a reader's hands so I, I never trash a book i've written one negative review in my blog in eight years and i'm going to talk about that in a wee while because the book just didn't work for me and the author's dead so <laughs> i'm quite comfortable making that statement now but on the whole this is a book that someone spent time and care on it's been put together. Some people are self-published and it's a very small crowd, but there's still an editor in the background. There's still people who proofread it. So there's there's people involved bringing this book to you. If you don't like it, that's fine. It's not for you, but it might be for somebody else. So I never trash a book, but I will make it clear it wasn't for me. And I've used that phrase quite a lot. Not for me, but I know a lot of people who loved it and this is why. 
So generally, if I don't like it, it doesn't make it onto the blog. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest on this episode, Gordon McGee. Gordon, we're on to the third book choice in the podcast, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Mort by Terry Pratchett. Yeah, Terry Pratchett, my my favourite go-to reader. Again, this goes back for many, many years. I was at high school and one of my pals gave me one of the books and says, try that. And I tried it and inhaled it. Absolutely loved it. He's such a well-known name, Terry Pratchett. I'm sure most people will know who he is, but he writes fantasy novels. He writes about a Discworld in the main. He, he wrote other stuff as well, but my, my favourites are the Discworld novels. And there's approximately 40 of those before he sadly passed away a few years back. And I just loved this wacky world he'd created. It, it's, it's a flat world. It's called the Discworld. It travels through space on the back of a giant turtle, which is on its back are four elephants. And then there's this world. And it sounds insane. But you kind of just accept that and go with it. And then you get lost in the characters. So when you're trying to explain to people why you should read Terry Pratchett and you talk about the turtle and the elephants in the world, by that point, a lot of people's brains are going, that's not for me. You know, it's, don't do that. It's, it's just not what I enjoy. But the stories are brilliant. He just, he's created this almost like a, a Victorian world, I would say. It had that feel of a Victorian era place in terms of its values and its, its technology. But he brought in lots of modern day references and sensibilities over the books. So Mort is the fourth in the series, and I felt the reason I don't recommend the earlier ones is the first two are very, very sci-fi. There's lots of dragons and fantasy elements and princesses which don't really reflect how the series develops. There are dragons in there, but they tend to be more comedy characters than the latter parts. But this, the first two felt pure fantasy, which for a, the more casual reader isn't so accessible. The third book is called Equal Rights, and that's a good one. But for me, this series really hit its stride with the fourth book, which was Mort, and it's a very comedy accessible book and that's why i recommend it mort is death death is a character in the terry pratchett novels he's a tall skeleton with glowing blue eyes who only speaks in capital letters in in the books but his voice resonates in your head rather than you can actually hear him but the only people who can see him are the recently deceased wizards and witches and cats he likes cats so already you're starting to get that sense of humor um, that came through with all terry pratchett's books he's he was such a clever funny writer and mort is basically death takes on an apprentice who was called Mortimer. And it's a great line. He says, what's your name, boy? And he says, oh, Mortimer. But they call me Mort. And Deathbase goes, that's a coincidence or something along those lines. It's that silly humour. So Death's apprentice decides he wants to try and save someone who's due to die and it all goes horribly wrong and the fabric of reality is threatened. But it's fun, it's engaging, it's got this strange, quirky world and it starts to develop characters that then go on for the next 20 years of his writing. I mean, Death is a regular character. He appears in virtually every book. Sometimes it's a cameo. And other times there's books called Reaper Man, where he again is the main character and basically becomes a farmhand and takes his scythe and cuts corn while the world disintegrates around about him. But Pratchett was, just for me, was a genius. And a lot of his books, they touch on things that he just parodies and pillories and makes, makes funny. So there's a book called Going Postal, which they made into a sky drama starring a number of famous people, including the late Andrew Sachs, which was about the post office. And the ruler of the city decides he wants to set up the post office and get it working again. So he sends in someone who was due to be executed to basically to save him. He gets an angel a chance to redeem himself if he makes the post office work. And it's hilarious and touching. So the series as a whole is my go-to, my comfort reads. I love them. There's just so much humour and enjoyment. I love the characters he created down the years and they became like friends. 
Death is a, a brilliant character. He created a police force, which appealed to me as a crime lover. And um, the Ankh-Morpork Pork City Watch, and there are a bunch of misfits and society's outcasts almost who form a very effective police force. There's witches who are also they live out in the wilds and the rural countryside, but they're brilliant fun. And it's the challenges from the unearthly spirits that maybe roam the land, take on the witches, and the witches keep the land safe. There's just hours of so much cleverness and entertainment. And so I always recommend Terry Pratchett to people and say, give it a chance. I know it's fantasy, but it's, it's not. You just go with it. You just accept it. And and I'd got my, my teenage son to, to try more recently. And I, I said, you know, not always do you want a, someone to love a book when you give them to him. He's, he's kind of flicked through the first bit. He said it was quite funny, but he's not really gone back to it because he's got a video game he's quite enjoying at the moment. It's like, read the book, read the books, put down the controller. It's extraordinary. I mean, I think he's sold, sold over 85 million copies of the books. It's been translated into about 37 languages. I have to be honest, I've never read anything by Terry Pratchett. And I don't know whether it's that idea, you know, you've, you've kind of touched on it, that, that in my head, that normally like, fantasy books aren't something that I would normally try. But then your, your words are now resonating in my head saying, just try it and don't, don't get yeah, you hung up on it. Yeah, you just kind of have to see past it. I mean, it, it feels, once you get more into the latter stories, it feels more like a Victorian comedy novel. Some of it's weird, there's gnomes and there's dwarfs and there's trolls and you're thinking, what? But he, he doesn't play on that, they just are. They're just who they are. It's like having somebody who's Scottish and somebody who's Welsh and somebody who's from Paris, you know, it's, it's just who they are and they, they play their part and you just accept the fact. And sometimes he plays on the fact that the dwarfs and the trolls hate each other and there's a rivalry and a war, but that's just a, a means to an end. And there's a book called Jingle where he, he lampoons war, which is basically... He lampoons everything in his books. There's one about railways, there's one about war, there's one about the printing press. He just takes a topic and makes it hilarious and makes it relevant and gives you people that you believe in and you will to win. And you just look past the fact it's set in this strange city with unusual creatures where there's a werewolf in the police force and a dwarf who's over six foot tall. You know, it's it's just that's part of the humour and part of the fun. And that's I mean, why I reckon that's why I recommend it to everyone because it's almost for a lot of people and perhaps yourself included, it's a genre you maybe wouldn't read. And you're missing out on some of the best writing that the, the country's seen for the last 20, 30 years. I mean, you said they're your kind of go-to books. So I take it then they're books that you'll just go back and read and reread just as and when you feel like it. As and when I can make time for it in between the stuff I have to read for the blog. Yeah, they're my comfort reads. I'm, I've got, I used to work in a bookshop up in Inverness when I was a student and when I was a, a school kid as well. It was my Saturday job. And I've still got copies of books I bought at that time. I've got a copy of one of the early books, which cost £3.99 in paperback. I think it's like £8.99 now, but you know, it's, it's captured that moment in history when books were, were less than a fiver. But yeah, the, the books are all well-thumbed. They're all well looked after. Um, and I, I've read each of them multiple times. My favourite ones, easily dozens of times, because I just, I just love them. They're just such good fun. Because I was intrigued, actually, for this question, given you know, the amount of books that you must read. And to an extent, your blog with every review is almost a recommendation, as it were. So I was intrigued to see what you would choose for that <laughs> particular category. And again, I touched on it earlier. If you have a conversation with someone, you can recommend something much more aligned to what they enjoy than if you're just pitching a book to, to the ether. So it, it is a balancing act. But yeah, if I'm, if I'm having a chat with someone and they're, they're open to the idea of trying something different, I'll say, give this a go. It's not a very big book. It's only about three, just over 300 pages, I believe. Very easy reading but great fun and that's the thing it's great it's great fun i think reading should be fun i do take it slightly personally if someone reads a terry pratchett and doesn't enjoy it me and my wife both have read them down the years as well so it's kind of like yay okay that's like a tick in the right box for that we got that one right the sort of foundation of a great relationship 
What I would say, and I, I, this is one of the ones I, I've kind of been laughing on Twitter because the decades feature that we spoke about where I asked people to choose their five books, I get a lot of flack from the people who are doing it and saying, can I just, nope, you've got to, do the, got to stick by the two rules, the five books, one book per decade, and I get a lot of cursing apparently. So when I was choosing your five books and I got to this one, which would you recommend? That caused me a lot of anxiety because this was the one I struggled with the most. Just missing out, I have to give it a wee name check. Killing Floor by Lee Child, which is just, again, the first in a series. It's phenomenal. Lee Child, I would suggest, is better known than Terry Pratchett and probably better, more widely read than Terry Pratchett, which is why I went for Pratchett rather than Lee Child. But if nobody's, if the person I'm speaking to likes a crime novel and they haven't yet tried Lee Child, then that's the book I'll put in their hand. Sneaky, sneaky sixth choice in there. Yeah, listen, that's fine. I, as I always say, <laughs> that, that there aren't really any rules. If people want to break them, I'm, I'm fine with that. The other thing I was going to ask you, you're obviously, and you said even prior to starting your book blog, you were just constantly recommending books. People were asking you for recommendations. Do people either recommend books to you or do they find it difficult to give you books as presents, given how much you read? <laughs> I always joke about nobody ever gave me books. And I think my family have taken that to heart and tried to find me books now. Yeah, people don't tend to give me books because, as they always say, they don't know what I've read and they don't know what I've got. And even my wife, she can't look at the bookshelves around the house and there are bookshelves all around the house. She can't look at shelves to decide if I've got a book or not because I've got a Kindle, which is bursting with books I haven't read as well. So for a long time, I joke about, well, it's my birthday, it's Christmas, it's Father's Day, nobody's given me a book, but they just don't want to risk it because I, I do read so much and I read quite diverse stuff. So yeah, it, it's tricky in that one. And people do recommend things to me. I mean, book bloggers, I because I'm active on Twitter and I follow a lot of other bloggers, I see their recommendations. And I know the bloggers who read broadly the same sort of things and enjoy the same as I do. So there's a, a handful of bloggers I'll go, well, if they enjoyed that one, pretty good chance I will too, because we like a lot of the same stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a very great honour as, as a blogger. I found if you, if you write a review and your review gets quoted in some form inside a book, recently that happened to me with a, a great Glaswegian series, um, the Harry McCoy series by Alan Parks. The newest book's just come out, it's called The April Dead, and the, the first four books all have January, February, March in their titles. So I've loved this series from the start, and the newest one, I'm actually delighted. Canongate used a wee extract from my, my last review to see how much I'd enjoyed the book. And there's two or three other bloggers quoted in the book as well, and broadly speaking, they like all the same stuff I do. So you can kind of see names and think, right, if they like it, I'll like it too. So that's great. So you get to know who you can align yourself with, as it were, and say, well, if they if they are recommending this and I've never heard of it, I'm going to try and pick it up because I think I'll probably enjoy it too. Alan Parks was actually a guest on a recent podcast, and I love I've read the first two in that series, and I absolutely I love the character. I love Bloody January and February Sun. So I've got Bobby March will live forever next on my to be read list. But I think that I think it's a great series. Oh, it's, it's, I absolutely love it. And it was my review of Bobby March, which was quoted in The April Dead. So um, it's just a bit about if you're not reading these books by now, you really should be. I think it's, it's quite on its own. It's, it doesn't sound like much. But when you, you discover a new series and you want people to be looking out for it, you, you really have to say, get these books. These are brilliant. You'll love these. And I think just the whole 1970s time setting. I saw him speaking at Bloody Scotland a few years ago, and he was, he was very entertaining. He was, uh, came across really nicely. Lovely chap. I spoke to him afterwards as well. And I thought, okay. okay. A nice validation for you, the fact that somebody's checking out your reviews and that sense of putting it front and centre in, in his new book. Well, it's, it's lovely. I mean, you write these things and you think, is anybody actually reading these? And now and again, you get an email saying, can we can we use that line? And it's like, oh, yes, yes, you can. You don't even need to ask. Just, you know, feel free. It's a huge honour. And I, I can go into, sometimes I'm in the supermarkets with my kids and 
they'll say, do you know any of these people? I went, well, I don't know any of them, but I've reviewed their books and I can maybe sometimes find the book that I'm quoted in, which is always nice to, to, to show the kids. You know, I, I don't have a particularly exciting job. I've got nothing nothing <laughs> I can show them for it. I, I was Years ago, I was walking through Glasgow and I was over at High Street and there was a, a, a man coming down the hill with his wee boy. The wee boy must have been about three or four. He stopped and he picked up his wee boy and he turned and he looked at the city skyline. There was a huge crane above the city. And he said, that's the crane daddy drives at work every day. And I thought, how cool is that? <laughs> you know, I'm going to bring up a lot. Of, Here's the complaint response I sent to that customer <laughs> yesterday. Are you proud of me, children? I thought, so I've got nothing to show for what I do. So if I can actually have a, a quote in a book saying how much I enjoyed it, then that's, that's a nice contribution I've made. You alluded earlier on to the book that you were going to choose in the category of one that we couldn't pay you to read again. And the book that you have chosen is Ash by James Herbert. Why Why that one? Oh, it just annoyed me. I don't know what happened. It's the last book he wrote before he died. And I don't know whether there was a, a problem getting the book from... It was a long time between that book and his last one. I don't know whether perhaps he had, he had issues delivering a, a book and he, he just kind of couldn't get a story. I'm guessing. I don't know. I love James Herbert's books, except for that one. I've enjoyed them all. I discovered horror when I was working in the bookshop when I was a teenager, and I read a lot of Stephen King, a lot of James Herbert, a lot of an American guy called Richard Lehman. There's so many great horror stories out there, and again, it's a genre people tend not to touch. I won't watch a horror film. I hate horror films. I don't. I don't enjoy them, and I can't do. I don't do jump scares. But with a book, I'm in control, and my imagination does what it needs to. So I do read a lot of horror stuff. I'd read all James Herbert's. Really enjoyed them. This was coming out. Ash had been in as a character who'd been in some of the earlier books. So it was, a, again, appealing to me, a recurring character. But I just didn't enjoy it. I just got halfway through. And I, I did say to you before, I, I don't remember much about it. I just know how much I disliked it at the time. But I can remember at one point there was a remote location that may even have been in Scotland where the lead character finds himself. And inside this remote location, this almost reclusive home, there are figures from history who are believed to be dead or missing who are actually hiding out here and i think one of them was lord lucan and it's kind of alluded to who they are but without explicitly saying who they are for a long time and he's a bit bemused by all this but i remember that there was a, a very scary bit where there was spiders in a cave and he was he was terrifying he was running for his life and everything had gone wrong and the spirit divine spirit of princess diana in her radiance glory as a beam of light and purification and all things good in the world and i'm reading this thinking what? What am I reading? And it, it it just upset me so much. And I'm no, it just annoyed me. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not into having people held up as beacons of light and purity and the answer to all the evils in the world because they they're hiding away in a remote Scotch. But it just annoyed me. So I, I kind of endured it to the end and vowed never to read it again. And it wasn't for me. It yeah. wasn't for me. That famous phrase. I suppose you kind of said earlier on that. Because I always feel whenever I, I'll sometimes just tweet, usually just a book cover and a couple of lines about a book I've read, and I'm generally always positive. And the books that I don't enjoy, I'm not doing a blog or anything, but I don't, I never see any merits for me in just putting a, a book cover out and just saying this book's rubbish. I think it's such a negative thing to do because, as you said earlier on, there is an effort, a real effort that goes in to writing that book. And just because I don't enjoy it, does it mean yep. that not everybody? So who am I to be that negative? And it's kind of like if you've got, not got something nice to say, don't say anything. Slightly different, I suppose, for a book blog, because as you say, you need there needs to be a credibility that people have to trust your review and trust your judgment. So you've got that more of the balance, which I, I like that phrase. It's not for me. I might just start stealing that. But It's a great get out because you don't have to be particularly vicious in your condemnation, but you can say, nah, it didn't work for me. 
but yeah, that one was definitely not for me, and I can pin it down to the, the randomness and the obscurity. I mean, it's a horror where you get away with a fair, fair bit of leeway in, in these books. But yeah, there's a lot of, again, I'm on Twitter quite a lot, and you see authors quite often saying, you know, it's all very well saying you didn't enjoy my book, but please don't tag me and tell me how much you hated it. And I, why would you do that, really? I know, <laughs> so, exactly. So I, I, always try, I always do try and be positive in my reviews because it, it's the least I can do. I've taken time to read the book. If it wasn't for me, the phrase then it's not for me but if you know if somebody will love it because somebody's put time and effort and brought it to fruition and there's invariably there's a good story in there somewhere if it's not one that rings my bell fine but i'm sure there's many people out there who will and i quite often will refer to other people who have enjoyed it and say i read this review by this person who absolutely loved it but unfortunately it didn't quite hit the mark for me so as we say it just wasn't for you it wasn't for me <laughs> but i'm sure other people have enjoyed it we are on to the fifth and final question and the podcast, and that is the either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And the book you've chosen, it's a book that's coming out in June this year, and it's called Phosphate Rocks by Fiona Erskine. And the subtitle is A Death in Ten Objects. This is published by Sandstone Press, who are based up in the Highlands. And it's brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Now, I am not a sciencey person at all. And it's an object of amusement to my wife, who is a sciencey person and who mocks my, my arts degree, even though she's got a science degree. So there's, it, it's very hard. I, I was joking. I was tweeting about the book as, as I was reading it. I do sometimes. I kind of go, this is brilliant. You know, you really got into this. And I was joking about it. I had no idea how to review it. And I haven't actually reviewed it yet because it's not due to be published till June. But I will jot some thoughts down soon. But I still don't know how to review it because it's, it's not what I expected. It's brilliant. It's utterly engaging. It's informative. It's funny. It's heartbreaking. It's great. I really, really want people to read this book, Phosphate Rocks. I'm trying to think how best to sum it up. It's set in Edinburgh. It's set in Leith, effectively within a, a chemical plant, I think. is I'm probably doing a, just a disservice to it by describing it as that. Effectively, lots of chemical processes happen. And it's a story about the plant's been shut down for a number of years. And they uncover within a, a shack or a hut on the site, a body that's been preserved in phosphate and they don't know who it is. So they bring in this gentleman called John, who effectively was the, the foreman of the site, I think. And again, I, I, I don't want to, I haven't got great notes about the people yet and I would flick back through it before writing the review. So John effectively was one of the, the main guys on the site. He gets brought in by the police and asked, do you know who this is? And the body is found in this shack and then on the table in front of the body, there are 10 objects. Each of the objects has a story behind it. And that's what the author Fiona Erskine has done. And she's taken each object and told the story relating to that object. And what John does is he relays that story to the police and to the reader. And it tells of a time on the plant and some things that happened and some people involved. And at the end he goes, but that doesn't mean it was so-and-so who the body is because they are now off working somewhere else. So what you've got is a series of 10 anecdotes almost about the objects on the table and how they relate to people that worked in the plant. Although it's described as a, it's almost like pictures of a murder story, but it's not. It's actually more like a love story for this place, this factory and these people. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's so engaging. Because the author worked with these people and worked on the site, I believe, these are actual anecdotal stories. So these aren't things that somebody's made up and tried to make sound real. These are authentic stories, actual people Funny things that happened that she relays into the book, which because they actually happened, it's like listening to a great anecdote by someone like Billy Connolly. You can actually, you can believe it's happening. You can almost feel the story building around you. Well, that's what Fiona Erkin's done here. She's, she's taken an actual event 
and relayed it to a reader. And because it happened, because these are real people, it feels real and you feel the engagement and it's just, it's better than a made up story, if that makes sense. So you get to know the people working on the site, you get to know the routines, but you get an appreciation for something that I just would never have known went on. You know, these guys that, that work these plants and in Fiona's case as well, the girls that work on the plant, they understand things, they know things that you just can't write down. They know how to fix a, an overheating valve in this without the whole thing blowing up. They know when things are not working quite right. So you have an appreciation for the skill and the, the cleverness and the adaptability of the people who are working on this plan to the point where they, they become real to the reader as well. It just flows so well. But with each object, there's also a little chemistry lesson, which sounds terrible and like it shouldn't work, but it absolutely does. Because again, the author's made this really interesting. She talks about phosphate and how it was formed and how it was discovered and how you can refine it, but she does it in a really clever and light and informative way. So you don't feel like you're reading a science manual. You feel like you're reading a funny story where you, you learn about how things have happened. And the whole thing is just brilliant. It just hangs together so well. You want to know who this person is. You want to know what happened to that character because it's alluded to in the second object that something bad happens to somebody that you don't find out till the seventh object. Then when you find out the seventh object, oh no, that's really sad. So it's, it's brilliantly done. And I think because it's based on Leith and Scotland and, you know, you get the human of the people, you get the feel of it. They talk about, you know, the, the foreman John would get people to breathe in his face before they come on to shift so he could tell if they've been drinking or not. They talk about how the, the guys would hide bottles of whiskey that fell off the back, literally fell off the back of a lorry, how they would hide them around the plants so the next time they came on shift they could find them. It's brilliant, it's real, it's clever, but it's a story and it's just magnificent. I've, I absolutely loved it. It's the best book I've read for, I've said for, for this year. But it's the best book I've read for a long time. I get so engaged with it. And I really hope a lot of people pick it up because it's it's just such fun. It's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> and also good to, I think, to support like a Scottish publisher like Sandstone as well and, and hope that, that that is a success for them. One of the things I was going to ask, and I'm sure I'm probably about the 300th person to have asked you this as a, as a book blogger, that obviously there's demands on you in terms of this book blog and constantly be reading books and being on these blog tours. How many books are you going through on, on, on a week on average? When things were normal and we weren't in lockdown and living in each other's pockets in the house and whatnot, I would probably get through about three standard size paperbacks in a week. I do the, what they call the Goodreads Challenge, which is a, at the start of the year, you set yourself a target for how many books you'll read. And then you can go onto this website, Goodreads, and you put the date you started reading, you put the date you finish reading and it counts in the calendar year how many books you've read and you get a chance to review it and leave a review on there as well which helps generate more publicity for the books so i i've been doing that for a few years and i tend to pick 120 125 as my, my annual target which is roughly a book every two to three days and i generally make it some of the books are graphic novels so people say that's a cheat because it's a comic book and it doesn't count but a comic book also does require time and energies to read so I fudge it, but bigger books cancel out smaller books. So over the course of the year, probably three books a week. Exactly. I mean, on the one hand, I suppose I always think however many books you read is however many books you read. I mean, that's, an, that's a really impressive total. But other people might say, well, I, I don't know how you can read that, that many books. But then you might look at what they're doing in their time and they're maybe watching a lot more telly. They're doing a lot. And you think, well, if you were reading rather than doing this or that, then you would read more. And I think oh, people that's... read it at their own speed. I also think as well, Audiobooks count, Kindle, comic book. I mean, whatever you're reading and whatever format, it's still a book. Last thing, and I read multiple books at once. It's not like I start one and then don't read anything else till I finish that. I've got easily six or seven books on the go at a time. And again, people say, how can you do that? 
well, they're all different. They're not the same books. I tend to mix up the genres. I'll maybe have a, a physical copy of a crime book and be listening because I walk my dog with audiobooks in my ears. So I'll maybe be listening to a sci-fi book. You know, on my Kindle, I might be reading something totally different to a physical copy. But I, I don't really have too much trouble keeping stories apart. I don't overwhelm myself in that regard. But you are right in that it's, it's how I spend my time. And one of my, my blogger colleagues, she gets very upset when people say, you know, how have you read so many books? That's bizarre. You know, how could you do that? And it's what she likes. It's what she enjoys. It's what we all enjoy. I haven't seen Line of Duty. <laughs> Everyone seems to have seen Line of Duty. I don't watch a lot of TV. So, you know, if the news isn't on, I'm generally not watching television. So I'm, I'm doing other things. I'm reading books. I play video games. I love video games as well. So my time goes on on those two things rather than catching up on dramas or soaps or yeah i'm kind of the same quite often the conversations are what and people will be talking about this box set or that box set and i'm aware of them but i haven't watched them because i always feel if i'm watching too much tv it's to the detriment of something i should be doing or i would rather be doing so i would rather sit and read a book or or write or do something else so but i think that's just that's a personal choice isn't it yeah it's what you enjoy i don't particularly enjoy sitting down to watch long spells of tv I, i find i get restless and i should be doing something else so well, listen, yeah. you, you and I both haven't seen Line of Duty yet, so you're not alone. <laughs> we are the, a small number, but yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's no reflection on Call It does look good. I keep wanting to call it Call of Duty, but that's a video game. But <laughs> I feel I'm living the series anyway through social media, so maybe I don't need to. Well, listen, Gordon, uh, sadly we've come to the end of the podcast. It's been real. It's been real joy talking to you about books. I did say to you before, and again... Uh, thanks for inviting me on to your blog to take part in that decades project, which I think people should check out on on your website. I think it's brilliant. It's going to give people loads of different recommendations, and uh, it's been been brilliant talking to you about books on this podcast. Oh, absolutely loved it. Thank you for having me on. It's been great, and I'll I'll do a wee plug for the blog, which is grabthisbook.net. And if you go onto Twitter and look for the hashtag decades, you'll find yourself, Paul, and you'll find my other guests. Um, try to post one a week at the moment so there's a few on there and there's 50 great books to to check out in the decades library which i'd highly recommend everyone has a look at 50 books and counting and counting thanks for listening to the read all about it podcast and i'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via twitter at read all about 20 on instagram at read all about it podcast or you can send an email to read all about it at paulcuddehy.com If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.